Guys, let's open up our Bibles to um, Luke 1. Luke 1. You get used to me saying this, but I have a lot for us. <laughs> and so I want to get, get right into it. Um, and I will say thank you, uh, Patty, Jason, and the, the worship team. Really appreciate it. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I thought it was amazing. It's always a joy to, to begin the morning like that with you guys. Uh, we've been in Luke's Gospel. We are going to stay in uh, Luke's Gospel here this morning. Just really getting started. Um, we're going to be in verses 5, uh, reading down through uh, verse 17. If you need a Bible, would you raise your hand? Did the ushers already bring those out? Everybody have Bibles in here? Anybody want to give a Bible to their neighbor? You can. You can take one of ours and give it away. But uh, if you have one, then let's open it up. Luke 1, verse 5 is where we'll start. Read down to verse 17, and then I'll actually skip us to the end there, verses 24 and 25. We'll read it and pray. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He would go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let me move this and let's pray. God, we watch how Christianity begins here. And we note that it begins in an impossible way. It begins with a barren couple advanced in years. 
bearing a child. And Lord, we're aware that the gospel comes to a barren people. That we need you to do the impossible in us. And Jesus, I'm praying as we spend time in this story, as we spend time in this gospel, in your word, would you do the impossible in our midst? Would you take the dead womb that is Nick Weber and bring life? And people here that are, are, are feeling dry and brittle, would you bring life? Would you, by the power of your word, revive us this morning, refresh us? Use this time, God, for your glory and for our joy. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, It's great to be back up here. Paul did awesome last week. Uh, If you weren't here, the message is online. Uh, I definitely missed uh, getting a chance to to be up here and uh, speak God's word to you guys as well. Let me uh, make note here in the beginning. One of the most difficult calls on a on a pastor on a preacher is to somehow balance uh, the richness, the depth um, of of a text like this, uh, all the interconnections throughout redemptive history, throughout the whole canon of Scripture that are here, somehow balance all of that stuff, just the deep roots of this text, with um, the simple logic of the text and the general flow of the story. Here's what can happen. I can get so excited about all these connections that I can miss just kind of, oh, Luke is telling a story. And, and, and as I'm seeing all of these allusions and things to the Old Testament, he's just kind of rolling on quickly and just telling the story about this couple. And so somehow the preacher, at least for me, I feel it, I, I want to show us all the backstory, show us all the allusions, show us the richness and the depth of all that's going on here, all the anticipation in the Old Testament age, and yet at the same time not lose the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the simple, simple flow of thought that we're given here in Luke 1. Some preachers, and, and it's no fault to them, but they um, have no problem just kind of going right through, dismissing kind of the stuff, um, all the connections and things for the sake of not losing the story at hand. But I'll tell you what, what I feel that does personally. You might disagree. I feel it kind of, um, it thins out the depth that's before us. It, it, it lowers the volume of the message. The message gets louder when we see that it started back in the Old Testament and is here just reaching this crescendo, right? And it kind of dims, in my opinion, the, uh, the glory of this story. When we see all that came before and all that's happening uh, now in light of that, oh, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And uh, only God, I, I come away just going, only God, only God could write this story. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, there are... There are countless allusions in these first couple chapters in particular 
to Old Testament uh, texts, Old Testament stories. Like I said last week, it's almost as if every strand of, um, of biblical revelation kind of comes to a point here at the coming of Jesus Christ. It's all been heading towards this moment. And so Luke just kind of explodes uh, with these illusions and things. And so I want to try somehow, by God's grace, to aim for, for this balance. I, I want to be able to show us the depth. I want to be able to show us the meta-narrative, this grand story that goes through the entire canyon, but I also don't want to lose the simple narrative before us of Zechariah and Elizabeth and this Gospel of Luke. So pray for me. It's not easy. It's, it's one of the greatest joys and it's actually one of the greatest difficulties of preaching. The depth and the simplicity. Have you heard that statement? You know, oh, the, the Bible is so, is so, uh, simple that it's like, like a shallow water that the kids can just kind of play in. They can understand it. And yet it's also so deep that theologians can drown in it. And it, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here, especially in the first couple chapters of Luke. With this in mind then, um, as we are kind of entering now into this first um, section of Luke's Gospel, the first two chapters, often uh, called the infancy narrative, because they deal with Jesus as um, a a baby, Jesus as a youth. Um, What I want to do is give us a basic outline, real quick, of this uh, larger story that we're in. And then we'll focus in on verses 5 through 7 and, and get, get, uh, start getting a little deeper. Um, so, these first two chapters, what we have essentially is um, all the themes of Luke's Gospel are here in seed form. It's, it's amazing how it all just kind of starts here. He sprinkles them all right here. And you get to watch in this gospel and in the book of Acts how they will develop. And another thing that Luke does that's very important that we're going to make note of here is he, he highly structures these first two chapters. There is significant structuring to his storytelling. And this actually uh, helps, aids us in understanding his message There is um, a parallel, uh, kind of this paralleling that John is doing, or that Luke is doing, as he's telling the story of John and Jesus. Okay? Well, I'll show you in a moment, but what we essentially have is John the Baptist, who was the, um, you could say, the last prophet of the old covenant age being kind of paralleled now with Jesus, who is the Messiah of the New Covenant age. He's bringing in the age of fulfillment. And Luke is trying to compare and contrast and show these two in relationship together. And I think the purpose he has in doing this is to try to show us that what the Messiah is going to do is connected to the Old Covenant age, John and, and all the Old Testament, But it's also contrasting with it in that in Christ, He is going to bring all of that stuff to a climax, into its fulfillment. Okay? So He wants to show, as He's paralleling these stories, how Jesus is connected to the old, and yet He's bringing in something completely new. And this might remind you of something I had said in previous weeks. All things new is emerging from all things old in this Gospel. I know I'm getting right into theology. Sometimes I, I, I jump into to introductions for like 
My preaching, my preaching uh, instructors would be like, you have 20-minute inju- introductions. This is not okay. But this is, I know right now I'm getting right into content, so my apologies if I didn't grab you, but I, 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 trust me, we're going we're gonna to get to some good places here this morning. Um, I just felt like I want to give you a basic outline of these first two chapters before we get into them. So let me make a quick note of the uh, structure um, that we find in these first two chapters. First, I'm going to show you how the paralleling, how the comparing and contrasting is is happening. First, and you can look if you want, um, the announcement of John's birth, verses 5 through 25. Okay? And there are a number of parallels within these parallels. I just don't have time to do that right now. Then you have, next, what? The announcement of Jesus' birth, verses 26 through 38. Same angel, Gabriel, same kind of thing, uh, following the same plot line. Then these two babies, John, Jesus, meet in a significant scene uh, in the womb, actually, as Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, verses 39 through 56. And then you see the birth of John, verses 57 through 80 of chapter 1. And then the birth of Jesus, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 40. And then it's the boy Jesus in the temple, and Jesus takes it away from there, verses 41 to 52. So there are significant similarities all along the way, and Luke is telling these stories to compare these, these, these two children. And really, the two ages that they represent. And what, what we find is that while there are a lot of similarities, the essential message of Luke is actually in the differences. It's in the contrasts, okay? As we look carefully, though the same kind of thing is going on, they're naming the child, and they're telling you what the child is going to do, and what promises it's going to fulfill, and uh, all these things. What we find is that Jesus is supreme at every point. That Luke is trying to show all this old old covenant era was moving towards the Messiah, and he's going to take over the show from here. So let me show you this. Um, we see this in their callings. John was forerunner. Okay, you will go before him. He's the forerunner. Jesus is fulfillment. Okay, he is the fulfillment. You got forerunner, fulfillment. We see this in their titles. John is called what? Verse 76 of chapter 1. The prophet of the Most High. But Jesus is called what? In verse 32 of chapter 1. The Son of the Most High. you got prophet who is going before the Son who will fulfill. And you see this in their ministries. John is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, right? Jesus, in chapter 2, verse 11, is the Lord. John is getting ready for the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. And then, like I said, the structure is going to help aid in our understanding of the message. What we have is, there's these parallel accounts through chapter 1. And then by chapter 2, it's all Jesus. And these stories of him and the temple and all these things, they have no parallel in the story of John. It's as if, okay, look, yes, there's connection to the old, but it's all leading to something new that Jesus is going to to do. So, 
Let me ask this as a way of just warming up our hearts this morning. Um, Where is Jesus in your story? If you were telling your story, if you were looking at your story, where is Christ? Is he... um, Is he forerunner for your show? (laughs) Is he coming before you and passing the mic off to you? In other words, does he exist for you? Is he in your story? Are you the show? Or are you the forerunner for his glory? Do you see your life, your family, your your, your work, uh, wherever you're at, as I exist for him, as like John the Baptist, I must decrease because I want him to increase. Where's Christ? In your story, in my story. Now, having located ourselves within the larger flow of this section, hopefully that was helpful, we're now ready to focus in on our text for this morning. I want to read it again, verses 5 through 7. I'm sorry, yeah, 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So we spent all of last time on verse 5. I don't know if you remember that two weeks ago. And I I, I told the story at a national level. I talked about Israel and how they had been through 400 years, the 400 silent years, right? Scholars had called it, even the the Jewish rabbis and things call it. 400 silent years between the close of the Old Testament and now when God opens it back up again. And how they were under foreign rule in their own land. Herod the Edomite reigning over them as king. They had all the promises, but nothing to show for it. Has God forgotten? I talked about the story on a national level. The tension in the first half of verse 5. Has God forgotten? Relieved in the second part of verse 5 as we considered especially Zechariah's name. Yahweh remembers. That's what it means in the Hebrew if you weren't here. Yahweh remembers. In other words, no, he has not forgotten. Yes, he is remembering now his promises of old in accordance with this plan and he's moving it forward. We talked about it on a national level. Level with regards to Israel as a people. Now, zoom in the camera on this couple. And we come to find that they embody in themselves this struggle and frustration and story of their nation. They are a couple, you could say, full of promise. And yet, with nothing to show for it, they have been through many silent years, you could say, They love God, love one another. No child, barren. No fruit. Has God forgotten? Does He care about me? The tension that we saw on the national level parallels this couple on an individual level, but so does the relief. Because we'll see in our story this morning that Yahweh 
indeed remembers. Not just at a national level. Okay, I'll deal with hundreds of thousands of people. It's fine, he does. But he does it one by one. Caring about each of us. Caring about Zechariah and Elizabeth. So as he moves in this, their personal story, he's moving for their nation and even for the nations, we will see. And so what we're going to do here this morning is, is proceed through three headings. Uh, first, you should see them there on your handout. A righteous couple, verses 5 through 6. And then a barren womb, verse 7. And a miraculous uh, birth in the verses that follow. So a righteous couple. I'm going to move somewhat quickly here uh, for the sake of hopefully getting to where I, I want to get. Um, but the first thing that's actually brought to our attention, and this will become important later, the first thing that, that Luke brings to our attention in this story is actually the quality of this couple. Both their, their lineage and their, their, their ethic, if you will. Their pedigree and their morality. So let me show you this. It begins with the idea of their commendable pedigree or their, their genealogy, okay, which is a big deal um, in the nation of Israel. And so when we read in verse 5 that um, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. There was a priest and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. This is a big deal. We have a son of Aaron here as a priest and we have a daughter of Aaron here. This is a, this is a priestly line. This is a very important line to the Israel, Israelite people. Aaron, if you recall, was the brother of Moses. And he was the first anointed high priest of Israel. So Luke is trying to say, these people, it doesn't get any better as far as ethnicity goes in the people of, uh, in the nation of Israel. Commendable pedigree. But then we also come down and we read in verse 6, that they have a commendable morality. Not only do they have the, the sort of lineage that you would need, they also have the heart, it would seem, and the, the, the morality, the ethic. We read this in verse 6. They both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, I, I don't know if you're like me or not. I, I am so prone to read Paul and every, every uh, time I see the word righteous or something like that, I go, no, it couldn't be. They can't be righteous. None are righteous. No, not one, you know. And, and I was like, Luke, what are you talking about? And, and uh, I want to help you understand this just for a brief moment. You could talk about righteousness in an absolute sense. That would be the Pauline idea there in Romans 3, that none are righteous. When brought before God, there is not one who can stand, right? None in an absolute sense can stand before God without being incinerated. It's not as if Luke is saying here that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth don't need the Messiah that they're preparing for, right? In fact, we'll read later um, in uh, Luke 2.10 that, that this Messiah is bringing good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Zechariah and Elizabeth included. They need this Christ's work. So we're not talking about sinless perfection here when we say righteous and blameless. We're not talking about it in an absolute sense. We're talking about it instead in a relative sense. Relative to what? Actually, it tells us. 
the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were righteous and blameless in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This points us to the old covenant, and this is the critical point. We are so prone to think the old covenant is just commands, right? Commands that need to be obeyed. True. But within the Old Covenant, there are also sacrifices that cover, uh, that that are a means of forgiving our failure to obey those commands. You understand? So there's both in the Old Covenant commands that we must obey and sacrifices that cover us, forgive us, uh, uh, when we don't obey. So what we have then in um, Zechariah and Elizabeth as they're called righteous and blameless. It does not mean that they're without sin. It means rather that they are trusting God's sacrifice for sin, trusting the whole, what the whole temple stood for, right? They're trusting in His sacrifice for sin while they try from their heart to live daily without, without sin in obedience to those commands. The sacrifice was central. There's a reason why uh, the Exodus is what's mentioned before the, uh, the Ten Commandments are given, right? I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now here's the commandments. So sacrifice, Passover land, all that stuff, central to the Old Covenant. And they are a people like the righteous remnant, if you will. They're pictured here by Luke as this righteous remnant waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the fulfillment of His promises in full, trusting in His forgiveness, trying to live in obedience to His law. Make sense? Okay. Now, we move on in our story to verse 7. And this is where things... Get interesting. We come to, we move from a righteous couple now to a barren womb. Luke first directs us to the commendable quality of this couple, but then he moves us into this profound tragedy. Their personal profound tragedy. As we read, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, I want to ask the question, why, why, Nick? Why do you say that this is a profound tragedy? Why profound tragedy? Now, to be sure, barrenness is, is deeply painful on its own terms, right? I mean, I think there are, I, I know there are people in this church that have struggled with it, right? And it is, it is a, it, it's got to be a, a devastating thing. Uh, I want to have a child. What is wrong with my body? Why am I not able to do this? God, what is going on? It's painful on its own terms. It's tragic on its own terms. But in Israel, there is another layer to this pain. Okay, In this nation, with, with their scriptures, there is another layer to this pain. And I want you to see that so we can understand what Elizabeth and Zechariah would have been going through for all these years. In the scriptures, in Israel's scriptures, first of all, we're given God's plan for humanity, right? And what is one of the first things that God kind of commands Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This is God's plan for humanity and their role in the earth. Bear children, fill it with my image, with image bearers, those made in the image of God. 
So already we're going, ooh, I see why barrenness has a little bit extra sting to it. Especially with this, Yahweh as your God and these as your scriptures. Am I in his plan? But it goes on. We're given in Israel's scriptures God's promise. Not only his plan for humanity, but his promise specifically to Israel. After the fall and the curse, right? Childbearing becomes troublesome and painful. And it's difficult. And so what does God do? But he singles in on Abraham, who would become the father of this nation. And he makes a promise to Abraham. And what does he say? You can read this in Genesis 17, uh, 4. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then later in verse 6, I will make you, Abraham, exceedingly fruitful. So built within this nation now is this promise that I will make you fruitful. I will, I will you know, reclaim that plan I had at first with this people, Israel, and you will be fruitful and fill the earth with my image. Starting to have a little more sting to it now. What am I doing in this nation? Childless, barren. I can't even partake of the promise. And then, if you keep reading in Israel's scriptures, we find that children are a reward for obedience. Okay? A reward for obedience to the commands. This is Deuteronomy 28. It says, If you faithfully obey the voice of your God, blessed shall be the fruit of of your womb. If you obey, fruit of the womb, be fruitful and multiply. You will you will be rewarded with children. But the opposite is also true down in, in uh, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28. It's a punishment, childlessness, barrenness, punishment for disobedience. It says this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then cursed shall be the fruit of your womb. No children for you. Barrenness, death in the place where there should be life. Now, all of this then, I, I, I assume you can start to see would compound to make childlessness, make barrenness a, 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 an almost unbearable reproach in Israel. Because I can't fulfill God's plan for humanity. It seems like I'm not a part of the promises that He's made to my, the, the, the patriarchs of my nation. And I do not have in my body the marks of reward for obedience to the law, but rather indications of, of punishment for my disobedience. Now we start to see why all over the Scriptures, barren women become the objects of scorn and ridicule. Mockery. And they're dealing all the time. You read it. It's, some of these descriptions are so vivid. They're dealing with jealousy and competition and bitterness and sometimes even suicidality. Sometimes even suicide becomes a better option to them. You have one of these barren ladies saying, Give me children or I shall die. I'd rather be dead than be childless in Israel. That's how much it hurt. But now here's what makes this tragic for Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
Here's what makes this so utterly confusing, so profoundly tragic. We're told in verse 6 that both were righteous and blameless. And yet, we're told in verse 7 that both were advanced in years and childless. And so you look at that and you go, how are we supposed to read that? How are we supposed to understand this righteous couple now experiencing this pain, this turmoil, this tragedy? And you gotta, you got to wonder, what were they feeling? I mean, this is, we're invited in, in, in narrative to, to try to empathize. If we're going to understand the story well, we've got to get in and go, what were they feeling? What would I feel? But I imagine many tears shed over this weeping. I, re- I imagine trembling prayers before God night after night. I imagine the scorn and the ridicule. I don't know what, Zechariah or, um, what Elizabeth would have experienced, but I imagine ridicule and shaming and scorn and reproach. And I imagine confusion. I mean, can you imagine this? They're reading these scriptures and they're going, God, I... I'm trying to follow you. I love you. I'm trying to be obedient here. What is going on? Do you love me? Are you for me? Or maybe, maybe, there's some, have you ever felt like this? Maybe there's some sin in my life and I just don't see it. Maybe those other ladies are right. Maybe my brothers are right. The reason for this reproach is because I have been in sin. I just don't know it yet. What's wrong with me? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever struggled with the fact that obedience to God does not always entail immediate, what we would think of as immediate, blessing? Have you ever looked upon people that have things going well in their life and gone, I know I should be happy, but I am hurting. I don't like it. Why them and not me? What's wrong with me, God? Now we see why Luke notes the righteousness and blamelessness of verse 6 before giving us the tragedy of verse 7. He wants us to have a nuanced theology of suffering, okay? He doesn't want us to make the same mistake that Job's friends did and countless others did in the Old Testament and countless others still do. And that is, we see sin or we see suffering, we assume sin. You see, there are other reasons why sometimes God brings suffering to His people, And we won't always understand, but we're given one of those examples here in this couple who was pleasing to Him and yet still was suffering in this life. We look at this couple and we think they have no idea that in the midst of such a profound tragedy where they had more than likely given up all hope. Advanced in years means hopeless. Okay? Given up hope. They don't realize that they're right in the middle of God's ancient plan. They don't realize that all of this, this, this profound tragedy, this barrenness, this childlessness, this reproach is not because of their, you know, a direct result of their sin. It's actually for God's glory and for their joy. 
That's where this story is going to move us. It's like Jesus. Do you remember when he told his disciples, they questioned him about that man born blind? Who sinned? I mean, clearly if he's suffering, somebody sinned. What is it? Was it his parents or was it him? He's blind. And Jesus said, no. <laughs> it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I was just getting ready to do this. See. Now we continue following the story of our couple. And we see that after years of tears and prayers and reproach the shame and, and the shame, Yahweh remembers, right? Yahweh takes note of them. This is verse 13 of Luke 1. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. I don't even think Zechariah is praying for a son there, just so you know. He was probably, he's a, high pri- or he's a priest and he's there in the holy place interceding for Israel. I think, given the, the note of hopelessness in verse 7, and then also his disbelief in verse 18, that he had given up hope. And, and God shows up in Gabriel at this point and says, I've heard your prayer. Not only the prayer for the nation, that they would be redeemed, that God would answer, would fulfill His promises of old in this people, but also those prayers you forgot all about from years and years before, that you would have a son. He brings together both the national and the personal concern in the bringing of this son, John the Baptist. And then you hear these wonderful words of Elizabeth down in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You see that? See how intimate the plan of redemption is? That it's not just the gospel for all people, the gospel that saves all men, it's the gospel that saves me. He comes for me. He looks on me. He removes my reproach as he moves for the nations. Now, throughout this narrative, significant backstories, like I said in the beginning, uh, from the Old Testament have been evoked. We're not going to spend too much time here, but I do want to make note of some of them. You see, God has been preparing us. He's been preparing us for the entrance of his son and these events that are surrounding this entrance. He's been preparing us from the very beginning. There are almost identical stories from uh, the Old Testament, specifically from high water points in the Old Testament narrative. So you've got to ask with me here, okay, God removing barrenness as an act of sovereign grace and a means of moving His redemptive plan forward. Where do we see that? The prototypical example would be Abraham and Sarah, right? Abraham and Sarah, where really the, the, essentially the first members of God's covenant family, the head of, that, of, of the nation of Israel, um, Abraham and Sarah. We recall that in Adam, after his sin, 
He forfeited the, the, the ability to be fruitful and multiply and, and fulfill that initial command, right? Filling the earth with God's image. And so what does God do? After He doesn't give up on man. Instead, He singles out this couple, Abraham and Sarah. And then He makes those promises I told you about that, hey, I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to, I'm going to multiply you. You're going to be the father of not just a nation, but nations. We're going to do this thing still like I had planned at the beginning, but now through you. But here's the, here's the, here's the kicker. Abraham and Sarah, his wife, barren. And we're told, advanced in years. Genesis 18, 11. Oh, I'm going to fulfill the initial uh, goal, but I'm going to do it through barren people. This is why, interestingly enough, they named their kid Isaac. It's not because uh, his name was, that name was like trending on babynames.com. <laughs> I don't know if you ever looked at that. I was, I was like, oh, Isabella's actually very, I'm so trendy. It's like up at the top. Oh, no. Uh, it's not because it was trending on babynames.com. You want to know why they named their child Isaac? It's, it means in the Hebrew, he laughs. And it's because Abraham and Sarah, when they heard this promise that God made, laughed in his face. How in the world could this be? You're going to take a barren old couple and, and, and bring forth nations? So it's the laughter of unbelief, but, but, there's another time that they laugh. And it's after God has fulfilled His promises and they look and they say, oh my gosh, anyone who looks on me will laugh what my God has done. It's the laughter of joy when He did the impossible. And this story just replicates in the rest of the patriarchs. Patriarchs, forefathers of Israel, God's covenant people, every one of them, same story. Remember that? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Same story. Did you know this? Abraham, he gives this promise, I'm going to make you fruitful and multiply you. But they're barren. So he works the miracle. Isaac, his wife Rebecca, given the same promise to be fruitful and multiply, that God's going to do this. But they're barren. Rebecca's barren. So he works the miracle. Jacob, did you know this? Given the same promise. Wife, Rachel, barren. So God works the miracle. And this is what Rachel says. Genesis 30, verses 22 and 23. I only read this because of the connections. You'll see I'm not making this up. (laughs) Then God remembered Rachel. Oh, God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, what? God has taken away my reproach. Sound familiar? That's what Elizabeth says if she can say, God has taken away my reproach. We're meant to see this new work that God is doing uh, in, at the beginning of Luke's Gospel with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the coming of the Messiah in connection to the plans of old. There's one more. <laughs> Dang it. I always get started too late. <sighs> okay. There's one more barren womb. That must be mentioned, in my opinion. And that's Hannah's. 
It's uh, probably the most vivid. Uh, we're, we're, we're given insight into some of the, the most tragic stuff in her story. I mean, she's at this temple in Shiloh, whatever it was, a tent or something, and she is just pouring out her heart. She's pouring out her soul, is what she says, before the Lord. She says she's weeping and can't even eat. She's so upset because she's been so scorned and mocked for her barrenness. And she's pouring out her heart. And then we read this in verse 19b. The Lord remembered her. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I should give you the... It's First Samuel 1. You should read the story. Because we're going to find parallels all over the place with this. The Lord remembered her. And she conceives and bears a son. Who? Samuel. Now what does Samuel do? Any, any thoughts on this? What does Samuel do? What is he famous for? He goes before the king. He is the one who anoints King David, right? With oil. And from that point on, the story in 1 Samuel, after 1 Samuel 16, is all about David. He's the forerunner for David, the king. Now, we're going to, like I said, see this all over the first few chapters, but what we have is John the Baptist being put forward as a last day's Samuel, if you will, coming before the Davidic king, coming before the promised one who's going to sit on the throne of David. And you want to know what John the Baptist is going to do? He's going to anoint this king in the Jordan River in his baptism. And from that point on, the Spirit rushes on Jesus just like it did upon uh, David. If you read the story, 1 Samuel 16, and Jesus goes off and it's all about him from that point forward. So we have then Abraham and David. I mean, it doesn't get any more significant in terms of the covenant in the Old Testament. And these allusions are being made, these connections are being made to the work that God is now doing Ultimately in His Son, in Christ. All of these stories, all of these connections, if you will, are to be seen as like runway lights, okay? We're about to take, take off here, and we are going through the Old Testament, we're going through the history, and now we're going onward and upward into the big sky of Christ's glory. It's all pointing to Him, What's the meaning of all this, though? Why all the barren wombs? Why is this how God is moving His plan forward? To be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Why start that with people for whom it would be impossible? What was that? It's like a robot in the eye. We're going to save R2-D2 here this morning. I don't know why. It's not like someone talking. Was it? Oh, that's okay. That's good. Did it? <laughs> that's good. I don't even remember what I said now. Uh, okay, I got. I got to. Speaking of taking off and landing planes, I got to land a plane here soon. Um, but where was I? Oh, what is the point? Why? Why all the barren wombs? Why all the impossible situations? Why does God let them get to be advanced in years if He could remember at any point? Why does he do this? What is he trying to communicate? Does he just want us to suffer and struggle and languish? No. He wants us to get this reality, I think. You cannot do it. I can. He wants us to turn away from ourselves. I'm barren. 
I have nothing. There is no potency here. There is only death here. If God is going to fulfill His initial program for the world to fill the earth with His glory, He has to come and do it. If He doesn't do it, no hope. That's why He picks out people for whom it would be impossible. I can't do that. Be fruitful and multiply. Are you playing a joke on me? Let's laugh about it. Or you'll laugh. Because I will do it. And we're given, we're given, um, Gabriel shows us that this is the point of all of this when he announces Elizabeth's conception to Mary. Remember what he says? He said, Behold, this is Luke 1, 36 and 37. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now, we're given, why? Why, why barren wombs? Why all this? He says this, For nothing will be impossible with God. You want to know what that is? That is a quote from Genesis 18, 14, where God is dealing with Abraham and Sarah. Don't laugh. Nothing will be impossible with me. This impossible work, this turning away from ourselves and where should we look, finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Christ. God with us, right? God has come down and He will ultimately, finally remove the reproach of His people. Here's the interesting thing. Zechariah and Elizabeth, their story, their story pictures for us the effects of the Christ's, of the Messiah's work. Why? Well, they move from reproach and shame uh, uh, to, 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 to joy. And that reproach and shame is removed. That's what the Messiah has come to do. It's pictured in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. But how the Messiah will do it is pictured in the story of Joseph and Mary. What do you think about this? Elizabeth's pregnancy removes reproach. Mary's pregnancy brings it. Even her husband is thinking, I got to divorce her. This is a child out of wedlock. What is that telling us? This Messiah, in order to remove reproach, is going to have to become the reproach, to bear the reproach. And this is what we see ultimately on the cross, right? Where the Creator, the ultimate definition of of fruitfulness, the one from whom all things spring, the one who creates and sustains and upholds all things, this one on the cross, barren as death itself. No family, no children, No friends, no disciples, just enemies, just scorn, just shame, just reproach. And the the reproach is coming from us, you guys. We're looking at Him, it says in Isaiah 53. We're looking at Him, we're thinking, "He He is smitten by God. He's getting what He deserves. He thought He was something special. But He was bearing in Himself the curse that you and I deserve. He was taking on our barrenness, our reproach. 
the screaming, the agony, the blood, if I could say, it looked like a miscarriage to everyone's eyes. But God's. Isaiah 53. It was the will, this is verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. This offering for guilt pays for my sin. This is in accordance with God's plan of old. The will of God is being fulfilled in Him. Offering for my sin, guilt removed, brings me to life by virtue of His resurrection. And now we are His offspring in His family. Barrenness in the crucifixion becomes be fruitful and multiply in His resurrection as we are brought into the family of God. And I'm going to end here. There's a reason why Isaiah 54 follows Isaiah 53. I want you to go to Isaiah 54. I'm just going to read it over you and we'll, we'll end here. But it's amazing. Isaiah 53 is the picture of, this, of this, this Savior and what He would do, how He would ultimately remove reproach from us and move us from shame into joy by bearing it for us. But then we see the effects as we're brought into His family and by virtue of His resurrection life made alive. Check out the language that is utilized in Isaiah 54. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. One there. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. In other words, be fruitful and multiply. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. The work he is going to do to bring the barren heart of Nick Weber to life requires something impossible. It requires that we do what John the the Baptist calls us to do. 
turn from ourselves and look to Him who alone, Isaiah 53, the cross and resurrection, can do this in us, Isaiah 54. This is the best news in all the world to the humble and the lowly, the barren and those who have been the objects of shame and scorn. But for the proud, oh, distasteful. I could do this. I'm telling you, God's telling you, you can't do it. Let Him do the impossible in redeeming you and bringing you to life. Love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and even your neighbor as yourself. What a miracle of His grace. Let's pray. God, thank You. Thank You that You do the impossible with us. Thank You that You make the message loud and clear throughout all of the history of of your redemptive plan that, that we cannot, we cannot become a part of it by our own works. It requires the miracle of new birth from the dead. And I'm praying in this room here today, God, that if there are people that don't know you, you would, you would show them just doing a Bible study or, or coming to church and checking it off your list is not what you're after. You're after the impossible of a new heart and new life from the inside out. And so I pray, Jesus, would you do that with us here today? Would you give us strength? Would you give us strength to trust you, to wait for you to remember, even if right now you have us in some hard situations? You have not forgotten. We are your wife. And you will lead us into the song of the bridegroom of the Lamb, or the bride of the Lamb. Your message, Lord, is, is loud and clear. Just like it was to the, the Israelites on the banks of the Red Sea. Be silent and watch. Watch the redemption that your God is going to do for you this day. Just be quiet and watch. Thank you, Lord, that you don't look for us to bring anything to the table. You chose barren people. You chose the youngest and lowliest shepherd boy. And you chose us, the foolish and the weak things of the world. So that the glory of your grace would be seen. And we would be brought into the joy of knowing it's not up to us, it's up to you. It's not about us, it's all about you. Thank you, Lord. Help us to walk, trust in that this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.